Welcome into Natchez Glen House Stories. This is going to be a great story episode. For a long time, gardening television and what we communicate to people who love gardening, major player in that category is with me today. What I want to do in the course of our conversation is not only give a little bit of a then and now in the changes in gardening, but also one of the most underappreciated things I feel about gardening in the last 20 years is there are so many incredible things to choose from, from a plant and flower perspective that maybe haven't gotten out there in the way that they should. Joining me is Paul Allen Smith. PA, how are you? Hey, man, I'm doing great. How are you doing, Steve? I am fantastic, despite right before we were recording, we were both lamenting the fact that we were in the southern United States. And in many years, what is very commonplace is we've got early temperatures of warm days and warm soil, which is resulting for this flower farmer at a large scale PA to be very nervous because everything is breaking out of the ground so quickly. Well, yes, I, this, just this morning, I saw our first daffodil, um, which heralds spring in the dead of winter, which is Rhineville's early sensation. It's our earliest daffodil to flower at Moss Mountain Farm. And um, it's followed by February gold. And we've planted over, well, you know this, I know, Steve, because you've followed me, but uh, we've planted over 475,000 daffodils. Uh, so it, it does speak to a bit of an obsession, which happens to us gardeners, don't you think? It does. Do you feel the daffodils sometimes a little underrated? Thought of, you know, they get, oh, they get lumped in with tulips yeah, sometimes. Often the best things, yeah, often the best things in life are underrated. Um, I think that they're fantastic and rank among the top flowers in my book. Um, we have about, a, we think, about 175 varieties. Uh, that range in bloom uh, or flower powers, I like to say, from, you know, this week until really the first week of May when we have a, a small white tazetta, which we don't know where it came from. It was on the farm when we took the farm about 15 years ago. And incredible value for gardeners. That, that's Well, deer don't eat them. Rodents don't eat them. They're fragrant. Um I don't recommend humans eating them. Um, it could serve as a purgative. Um, I once heard a story about a woman who'd, who'd brought in a vase of them. And, you know, they have a very sappy sort of mm. uh, um, nature to them. And she had put them in a, in a water glass and, and placed them uh, in the house and then took, the, took them out uh, and put them in some sort of vase or but then forgot about it and walked by and drank the water. Now, it didn't kill her, but uh, these alkaloids in it are serious. And she, you know, went about heaving for, I think, two days. But she certainly lived. But that's the reason rodents and deer don't eat them. And that's why they're a marvelous plant. And that's why we have 485,000 of them. That's not a bad number, PA. That's a good number of daffodils. That's one of well, those people's attention. Well, it's going to go up next year. I'm, I'm, I'm sad to say we only added 12,000 this year. I try to get it all up closer to 20, but, you know, time is short. What do you like in the garden to come in behind your daffodils? What's your inner planning to take 
over the show after the daffodil ends? Well, most of ours, and you'll have to come out and see, but most of ours are planted in a meadow. And uh, we have a lot of things that um, come up in the meadow. Um, interestingly, the Tradescantra, the spider ward, our native Tradescantra, uh, is beautiful with the late flowering ones. And we've got a lot of sort of early uh, wildflowers out there in the way of bluets and claytonias, uh, the spring beauties. And um, I've worked like a madman to include Star of Bethlehem. Um, and we stick those out all the time um, in different places uh, to really delight visitors. Um, and I'm, I'm working on more meadow plants in there. But most of those, as you know, come along much later after the daffodils have gone back to sleep. Before daffodils, before Moss Mountain, let's let's frame it up a little bit, PA, because I don't know if everyone knows your backstory. H- how did we get to four hundred thousand plus daffodils? What what is? Did you grow up with one of the jokes I always make with my friend Dr. Alan Armitage? Is Alan and I are two people we didn't grow up with family members who were gardeners at all. Was your story, were, were there people in your family that were gardeners? Did you find it on your own? How, had, how'd you get started? At, oh, no, I absolutely had no no, no choice, really. Um, you opened the show calling me Paul Allen Smith, and that, that sounded like my mother. Um, and, um, you know, I'm known now as P. Allen Smith, but we come from a long line of nursery people that, that, that really started um, not just east of you, um, you're in Franklin, and we had family there, the Crutchfields and the ha- and the Crutchfield house is our family house there in Franklin. And then uh, Stones River was a battle fought by my family, or uh, fought in it. And then, uh, but they came from the Cumberland Plateau, and they were all very good herdsmen, all Scottish um, and English descent, good herdsmen and good farmers um, since about. 1790 when they arrived there very early and um so they've all always gardened um i wrote a blog um this last week in my newsletter of which your your followers can can subscribe to by going com and get that newsletter but i entitled it um manure and other winter thoughts um and it's that it's the it's that family that, that grew things organically and got into the nursery business um, about the time that Mr. Vanderbilt was creating Biltmore. And uh, Mr. Boyd, whose farm was next to the Smith farm, started the nursery industry over in Warren County. And that's where my father's family comes from. So at supper, all we talked about were plants. And, you know, interlaced with chickens and livestock. So I didn't really have much of a choice. So that far back, this is this is incredible for me, PA, because McMin- for those of you who don't know, Warren County, McMinnville, uh, being one of the cities there, was one of the hubs of nursery production in the United States. So your family was there from the beginning of that. They were. They we, we, we joined Mr. Boyd, uh, but it took a while for our family to catch on that there was more money in nursery 
than there was in trying to scratch out a living um, with, um, you know, tobacco and cotton, which exhausted the soil. And um, after the, as my grandfather used to say, the War of Northern Aggression, uh, they shifted to producing um, fruit trees. Um, and then the fruit trees led to ornamentals. Um, and they they enjoyed shipping those, um, really, I think, mainly to the Chicago market early on, Steve. Wow. Now, your own career with plants, how did you go from person who grows up in the nursery industry, clearly passionate about plants and gardening, to the media side of plants and gardening? Well, I always had an interest in plants. Um, I think, you know, I have cousins and actually siblings who don't really give a fig about them. So being around them early on doesn't necessarily make you a plant geek. I think there's something, you know, else that goes on with someone. And it did with me. And I grew things as a child all the time, planting and growing and all that sort of thing. Had a little greenhouse and was very interested in this kind of thing. But um, I went away to college and studied biology with an emphasis on botany, mainly because I knew a lot about plants and it was easy, uh, whereas other classes were more challenging, like, you know, quantitative analysis and, and uh, biochemistry. Um, so I focused on botany and then spent um, uh, time in England and studied garden history and design at the University of Manchester there in the graduate program in the School of Architecture and uh, became a certified fellow of the Royal Horticultural Society while I lived in England and keep strong ties to England um, there virtually every year and and, um, some of my best sort of, um, I call them brothers of the spade, um, live there. Do you feel there's a quote from Christopher Lloyd where he talked about the creativity of gardening and plants. Do you feel that's an underrated component? So much of what people have heard sometimes by going to nurseries or independent garden centers is more of the practical than the creative that maybe people haven't seen that working in a garden is really just as much a creative pursuit well, absolutely. I think it's become too mechanical, frankly. Um, I was taught by my professors in England is that, you know, good garden design is good picture making. And happily, on my mother's side of the family, I was in, they insisted that I pursue my artistic uh, uh, bent and paint. Um, and so I think garden design is really about picture making and painting. But um, Chris Lloyd, Christopher, was fantastic. Uh, and I've spent many times at Great Dixter. For those who don't know Christopher, sadly, he's now gone and watching us from a cloud. But Fergus Garrett's doing a very good job, I think, at Great Dixter. And um, um, I think Christopher was absolutely right. And he did have that penchant for the artistic and did beautiful things with those great herbaceous borders. Uh, at Great Dixter, um, he had the good fortune to get a good, solid, I think, hardscape at Great Dixter with the help of Edwin Lutchens. Um, that was his father, I think, had hired Lutchens to do that. But you've got a great framework there to do all kinds of things with the ephemera 
which is what I call the annuals and perennials. That is completely true. And it's one of the things I also wanted to touch with you on, and you mentioned this. In the the 80s and 90s and even into the 2000s, I feel personally that there was this a little bit of a back and forth. We had the industry of horticulture at the point of sale who, you know, to their, it makes sense, they're trying to sell plants. And much of that became talking to potential consumers that the plants were low maintenance and that their role in gardening was maybe going to be more passive than active. Do you feel that same way? Was that a mistake? Is that something that you've seen in your time talking with people and interacting with so many in the gardening world? Well, I think the huge mistake that happened, who knows when, but we made a turn. Perhaps it was in the late 70s and early 80s. But uh, we got into this, and I think I blame it on the suburbs, and I blame the suburbs on automobiles. Uh, but that's a whole other topic for another podcast. But the, the, the idea of shrubbing up the foundation of a house became what you did. And that was it. And now you see all these houses in the suburbs. It looks like they're floating on the shrub barge and it's horrible. And, uh, we, we've turned our back on the great legacy that our ancestors, uh, we all came from farming stock at some point. I don't care who you are. Talk to J- Jacob Rothschild, he'll tell you that as well. And so, but we've lost connection to it. I remember uh, coming back from England uh, with sort of the zeal of a new convert. And we had a garden center at that time. We had a garden center for 15 years where we dealt with the public. And you would find people coming in absolutely clueless about plants. I mean, you'd ha- I had a 65-year-old woman ask me what a petunia was. And I said, how in the world can you live on this planet called Earth for 65 years and not have the awareness to know what something like this is? Well, I lost a customer, but I made a point. I mean, it's unbelievable. And we would have them come in and they want something evergreen, no maintenance, flowers all the time. And I just say, you need to move to another hemisphere of the planet because that's not going to happen here. And they don't, they, I never saw, well, no, that's not true. We had extraordinary customers, but it came through education because I did a series of workshops every Tuesday. I mean, I'm sorry, every Saturday uh, at 10 o'clock and at two. And the idea was to teach the art of gardening. And there's where people really called on to it. And I think along the way in the eighties, had we had more, um, I think talk and and illustration, demonstration about the art of gardening and how it is really painting with plants. And uh, I think we'd be in a different place than we are today. I could not agree with you more, Alan. Let, let's explore that. Let's vet that out a little bit. Yeah, sure. So, so the industry itself. Uh, Many times I use this analogy for people on the nursery production side of it. You're not growing the most beautiful crop all the time. You're growing the fastest crop, the best yielding crop, the crop that has the best propagation rates. And there's this. Well, you're also growing crops that are easily shipped. Um, You're growing things that um, 
you know, require, as you pointed out, little little care in the field. And that narrows the palette from which people could draw. When I came back from England, um, we were selling the same old, you know, six and seven of the, you know, just the, the you know, Hellerai Holly and all this sort of nonsense, a few azaleas and this and that and Liriope. When you look for perennials or roses or other categories of plants, um, even among annuals, all you could really find in those days was impatience, red salvia, and uh, for God forbid, orange marigolds, and that was pretty much it. And so we really went on a, a charge uh, to bring in perennials, things that I had remembered stomping around as a kid in Warren County and seeing these marvelous things like Lunaria blooming in the fence rows and sweet peas um, and, and as well as all kinds of roses that grew, you know, for instance, New Dawn, which was the first patented plant introduced in the 1930s. Um, they all, both New Dawn grew on at, at every one of my family's farms. And where were they today? And so we began selling New Dawn, and we ordered all kinds of perennials. Started with Gilbert H. Wild and Son. That was our source. One of the things that surprises me is, especially in a Southern sensibility, do you think that we lost some of that knowledge that we did have these gardens, not only through the South, but through the entire country, where things like roses and sweet peas were grown? And it seems like it was almost forgotten. Oh, you're absolutely right, Steve. I mean, the legacy goes way back. I mean, and one can, uh, you know, recite countless um, uh, examples of it. I was a junior member of the Southern Garden History Society, and it didn't take going to many meetings there to understand really the breadth of this great legacy. But you can just go back and look at seed catalogs and plant catalogs from the late 19th century. Of course, that was all being, it was all coming out of Victorian, uh, the Victorian world, uh, in England and America, where there was a great plant craze, uh, these great collectors, you know, they were collecting everything and creating vast gardens of these, uh, marvelous plants. So it comes from that legacy and I think also our agricultural legacy. One of the things that, um, I, we work with Gilbert H. Wilde and Sons and, in um, uh, Reeds, Missouri, they, they were established in 1885, and they still carry on that tradition of great perennials. They started with peonies in 1885. I think there's some 700 cultivars of peonies that they keep today, and uh, iris and daylilies. I think there's 1,800 cultivars of daylilies, and um, probably a thousand perennials, and they focus strictly on perennials. But And I get behind what they do. I curate their plants for them, really out of this, this need to perpetuate this legacy of, of gardening and having at our fingertips interesting plants that you can't go into a garden center today and find. Let's fast forward it to today. Do you see where we're at as a positive overall? We've got more ways to communicate directly to existing gardeners and potential gardeners and consumers and audience than we ever have before through social media and technology. 
Do you think we're at a, a new place with it? Do you see that as opportunity? Do you think we're taking advantage of that opportunity as hardcore plant people, PA? Well, there's a lot of noise. We've created a lot of noise um, in just in the course of my media career. Um, now everyone's an expert. Everyone's a brand. Um, everyone has an opinion. And I think that's created a lot of confusion. Um, on the other hand, I think it's probably made information more accessible. Depends on how you want to cut the cake. Um, I, um, I don't, I look for the evidence, uh, of this in gardens and I don't see it from an artistic standpoint. I think it's because there's a great interest, particularly among millennials and those slightly older in food and food gardening which is a great thing. Um, they're becoming more interested in, uh, the eco in ecology, which is fantastic. And um, when we do work with, uh, we are very focused on pollinators and, and, and work on things that help to restore the planet. Um, we use a phrase called fantasticology, um, which is an amplified ecology. Uh, for beneficial insects uh, and pollinators. We keep seven hives of Italian honeybees at Paws Mountain. But over the past almost 15 years now, we've really worked at attracting uh, beneficial insects. And I'll tell you that the bird life has uh, in, enhanced mightily because of what we've done with, with food for them. Um, and I, I think that people have gotten very interested in this kind of thing, food gardening and things that can help the planet. And there's nothing wrong with that. So I'm very happy to see all that going on. But I have seen a decline in some of the older areas, such as roses, uh, antique roses. And I know you're a great fan of those, and you do a beautiful job with them. Um, we have a rose collection. Uh, we created a rose garden some years ago at Moss Mountain, where we focused on the conservation of the noisettes, which are the first class of American roses. They were developed, with the, uh, it was a collaboration between John Chantnitz in Charleston with Pierre, I mean, Philippe Noisette. Uh, his brother Pierre worked, uh, had the benefit of the patronage of Josephine, and uh, they were very well known, the Noisette family, for creating new hybrids of, ro uh, of roses, which was, that was sort of the, the apogee or zenith of, of uh, rose cultivation, I think, in, in the world. But we try to keep as many of those old varieties. And so, but what we say now from, you know, Chantneys and, and Noisette were busy, you know, in the first quarter of the 19th century in Charleston. And we believe there's about six, 76 varieties of these roses yet existing. We have 38 of them at Moss Mountain. We've worked with the Historic Plant Center at Monticello and Historic Charleston <clears throat> and so forth to sort of garner these these roses and get them back into one place. Now, I but, want um, you to not be humble about this comment I'm about to make. And it's one of the things that I see and it does bother me personally, PA, mm. is you mentioned people who were maybe early on social media uh, early on YouTube as a platform, and there's a little bit of this, of a presentation of them being experts, finger quotes, 
But what always concerns me about some of these folks who are very popular is I don't hear them mention a lot of the names and people over not just the last 25 or 30 years, yourself, Alan Armitage, Michael Durr, we already mentioned Christopher Lloyd over in the UK. I don't hear a lot of these people. Rosemary Berry. We could go on and on. And and I don't hear some of these of the moment people who are presenting themselves as experts bringing up any of these people, PA. And it, it concerns me because I'm a bit of a believer, I think like yourself, that, you know, we learn from those who came before us. And if you don't know those folks, how do you really know gardening? Well, it's a, it's a bigger it's a bigger issue than gardening. I think it's it's the way in which civilization perpetuates itself in the sort of handing off of important knowledge from one generation to the next. And there's a great chasm now between that sort of set of people who remember. I mean, you know, Penelope Hobhouse was a great friend. Rosemary Very, the you know all these and and these. Uh, luminaries from the United States. You cited um, several of them. Uh, Pamela Harper was another, and lots of these folks who've now gone on. Um, but there is no reference to their work. It's as though that all ended and was shelved somewhere, and it's locked away. And I, frankly, rely on those people, the voices, the tapes I replay in my head of conversations with them. I was fortunate enough to be at a time when when I could sit and, and um, visit. I, I had one of the last interviews with Graham Stewart Thomas, um, who was a, probably held up as one of the greatest Rosarians um, in, um, in England, and, and knew David Alston um, as well. And their perspective on gardens and the way in which they put things together and thought about it more as a an ecology, an ecology of beauty, uh, almost a fantastic ecology, this word that I use so often, is because they, they created these beautiful pictures. And, and along with it went sort of the science and the understanding. And so much of that seems to have forgotten. Everything's very superficial and it's like a rock skimming across the water. Hmm. There's no deep, no deep water. Do you feel that is something we can correct? We, you and I, before we started recording, we were talking about the culture of a lot of the content that exists on YouTube, that deep diving, providing people large amounts of information on very specific topics and telling some of these stories is acceptable there. We're, we're not under some of the restraints of maybe uh, historical media outlet and creation. Do you feel that's something that all of us that do understand the value of the people and the places that many of those people created is important to tell and to share now more than ever? It's terribly important. And, and you're probably right, probably more so than ever before. Uh, because in the past, people would pick up books. I have a vast library, um, which, you know, has its, uh, has its pluses and negatives. But um, the, the point is that you've got um, 
there's a such a bevy of of uh, information there from experts. I mean, I was just reading last night from Vita Sackville West and picked up a few tips that I need to need to apply this 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 winter. And then the other is that I've, you know read Gertrude Jekyll, but no one refers to these people anymore. What we have are a lot of people who are vapid talking heads. Um, and to me, the litmus test for me is, do they walk the talk? And um, one of the, I guess, precepts for our company in media when we started in 1993 was I refused to, to first uh, only talk about things that I'd done myself and knew firsthand and that I could demonstrate. And the other was to absolutely be myself. We had these experts coming in and telling me I needed to change my accent. And some said I needed to wear a hat or one even said overalls. And I thought, you know, this is silly business. What's wrong with just being yourself? And, uh, you know, who cares if I talk like Huckleberry Hound? Um, but I think just a core honesty is needed. And um, I think that would be ideal with a lot of what's out there is to, for this information to come from grounded people who are very interested in the history of what we're talking about and are eager to share. I will tell you, the, the, there's an audience out there that is interested. I hear people all the time in social media say, tell me about this, teach me this. So there is a hunger out there. But I'm not sure that some of these, what are referred to as influencers, whatever in the hell that is, um, you know, have enough uh, life history to really provide depth. And that's what we need. It is one of my great fears that some of the, the people, as you mentioned, influencers who are in many times just profitizing off of the attention that they get through plants, pretty pictures. We of live in a world. Yeah. It's all about sensationalism. And I mean, you see it in the media. I mean, what can you trust? It's all sensationalism. Everybody's just looking for eyeballs, likes, clicks. You know, it's nonsense. And with our social media, I couldn't give a fig about the numbers. What I'm interested in is engagement. Are, you know, are we giving people something they want? Are they responding to it in a positive way? Do you feel a certain sense of freedom now that you have autonomy over the content that you produce? Oh, I always have. We've owned everything. We had HGTV and other people approach us over the years and had no interest in being subservient to some larger corporation. And, you know, that's why we have a limited number of sponsors, because I pl frankly don't believe in their in their missions. I don't believe in what they're doing. I think that they're painted green in many cases. And uh, if people knew the backstory on a lot of these corporations and gardening, um, they'd turn their back on them. Do you see where we're at now? Because this is something that pains me over the last year or two. I'll give a, a very practical example of this. I went on a very deep Irish Germanica dive, PA, very deep, <laughs> as deep as you could go. And yeah. I find that thrill of sourcing and finding mm. both new 
and old varieties and saying, oh, look at the falls on this that are more of an old style dog ear fall, but the color Mm -hmm. is incredible. Mm. It's a a Mm. coffee brown tone to it. I find that part of it thrilling. And I also find that I'm concerned that people don't even know that exists. That we we think of Irish Germanica and we think purple, yellow, maybe white. And that's the extent of it. And the presentation of it over the years has been dumbed down. Let, let's be honest about it. Do you, you think, again, that kind of thing offers who knew who knows who's out there p allen who would love some of these irish germanica do, do you see some of that the same way clearly you've got four hundred thousand plus daffodils there's other plants like roses that you're clearly super passionate about i always look out and go i wish people had this same experience where they knew this exists they they get that moment they go i didn't even know this was a thing 10 minutes ago well well, I, don't you think that's the irony of where we are? I mean, you have all this noise and all these people throwing things up. But at the end of the day, where do they find these things? And where does it, and, and how can they integrate them into their life, I think is what we're we're talking about. And I think, you know, the, the great old tall-bearded German iris, Iris Germanica, is a very good example. We used to have a, an iris show here in, Little Rock, uh, Arkansas, every year with the with the Iris Society, and uh, people would come by the hundreds to look at these gorgeous, sweet smelling uh, Iris Germanica um, that that uh, really stole people's hearts. Um, and I would love nothing more than to help people who are very interested to try to establish collections of these because. I, I don't know. I'm, I find it wholly satisfying, and sometimes I feel like the Lone Ranger out there. Um, but in, in talking to you I, 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 and others, I, I think that there, and what I sense from so many who are following us on Instagram and Facebook, and we don't do anything on Twitter, it's sort of silly, really. Um, it, they, they do really seem to want to go deeper. So I think you're you're on to something. I mean, my favorite uh, iris, you know, you talk about, what well, you just think about these irises, just these big purple things. There's a beautiful melon-colored one. I don't know if you grow it, called Cordoba. Yes. And uh, absolutely stunning. And um, I have every Cordoba I can reproduce because when they flower, people stop and gasp. And, and people and weren't even so aware when I talked about Irish Germanica on Instagram yeah. ad, ad nauseum, PA, people weren't even aware that there's now reblooming varieties that at least give you a little oh, okay. something in the late summer, early fall. And what I also shared with them, which is again, one of these both sides now, Joni Mitchell kind of quotes, is the breeding work on the rebloomers because back as far as the 50s, 60s, and probably oh, yeah. unbeknownst to us even before that. So oh, yeah. when you, you, yeah. you talk about these groups, and this is one of my key fundamentals moving forward, is we just haven't done a great job storytelling 
as plant people and showing that the beauty is in the detail of plants and gardening, that the low maintenance approach didn't do us any favors in telling the stories of these incredible palettes of plants and flowers that are out there. Yeah, yeah. Well, peonies are another one. But, you know, for instance, if people want to see Cordoba, you can go to my Instagram feed. There's a, a picture of one of them. It was, it's blooming on the 29th of August um, because it's a re-bloomer to your point. It's So now for people like yourself and for me, we want to get people, and I, I know, as you said, you do a lot of work still, in preserving plants and flowers. For those of you that aren't aware, the UK has actually had a, has a national trust system for garden collections of different plants. Do you think that's ever something that we would see here that we try to create some kind of national collection, national trust kind of idea similar into the UK? Well, I, I've often thought about that because um, I'm, I was a, former board member of the Royal Oak, which was the American arm of the British National Trust. And we had lots of meetings in America and abroad in England uh, at, at these properties. Sadly, we don't have a national trust. Um, we're not, uh, there's not a system in place that preserves these great architectural properties um, like there is in England. But they're the natural place for these collections of plants. I couldn't agree more. And um, we've we've gone and looked at the you know there's several rhododendron collections. We went to the <laughs> we went to I can't remember the house now, but there's a national trust house that has the national aster collection. And we went there in in September um, on the day of Saint Michaelmas for the Michaelmas daisies. Mm. And um, so you go where you know there's the national. Um, um, you know, um, what is it, the, the Bluebell, the English Bluebell collection. And you can go and see all these things in flower. And I think, you know, I, why we, I just think we don't have a system in place in this country where these properties are, are in a safe place. The collections can be managed and maintained in a safe place that will be perpetuated from one generation to the next. You and I are going to have to go get some gladiolas, by the way, because I hear this is uh, this is happening with gladiola. Uh, good friends of mine yeah. grow gladiola up in Connecticut, and sadly, yeah. the New England and New York Gladiola Society has essentially sort of dissolved uh, based upon yeah. lack of participation and lack of membership. Yeah. And there are yeah. incredible, and, and what I think is so interesting sometimes, PA, is in a cut flower sensibility and floral design sensibility so much of the the mauvey brown color palette that some people are trying to create today exist in flowers like gladiola and iris oh yeah and well i just interestingly i just got an, a message from a friend in in uh, minnesota who who has a huge gladiola collection and shows them there's still gladiola shows going on up there I've never been to one and would love to go to one. But, I, you know, for me, I, sadly, I think they've been relegated in people's minds to funereal plants and flowers that you see on a spray on a casket. Um, 
and um, that's the association they have. No one really uh, will celebrate them uh, in the garden or celebrate them even as a cut flower in the house. I think they've gone out of favor, which is silly. It is. Um, you're, completely, my, you're completely correct, PA. People have said this to me, and I'm like, are you talking about the one white or yellow gladiola that you're familiar with, not the yeah. thousands of cultivars that have been selected oh. over the years? Oh, and what about the species like Gladiolus byzantina? Yes. I mean, that is the most amazing flower, and it does follow our daffodils, going back to one of your previous questions. And, and, and the, it blooms fire yeah. And then in mild climates, they can perennialize. There's a lot. And that's really where I see us today. And I wanted to transition us over to plant talk here as we, we head towards the home stretch. What are you excited about? What in this last like five or 10 years, as far as plants go, really when you, you see them, it's either unexpected. It's something that maybe in the past you hadn't considered that you now are. What are you excited about? Well, from a plant standpoint, I'm very interested in moving past what we've deemed as sort of beautiful, maybe that classical English garden, to <clears throat> beautiful gardens and combinations of plants that play well together for the ecology and are good for pollinators on all levels, whether it's the feeder of the larva in the way of, you know, uh, Queen Anne's Lace, or my favorite is Bronze Fennel, uh, to mature butterflies, and there's a whole list of plants that would do so well there. I even convinced a bank, and it's gone over great guns, for us to, to do a, um, a program for pollination. Um, these landscapes that commercial properties have today are just full of really plants that don't offer a lot to the ecology. I said, let's take 120 square feet, <laughs> excuse me, at 21 different branches, and let's do a pollinator. So that's that's what we've done. It's called Bloom With Us. And so it's, an, it's a way of sort of helping banks uh, and customers driving by to see something where it's sort of stopped the car. Oh, my gosh, that's fabulous. But... It has a great purpose with regard to the ecology. So that interests me. The other thing that I'm very deep into is the soil. And um, that's the sort of basis of my blog that I put up last week for my newsletter, Manure and Other Winter Thoughts. The whole, or the whole um, universe that's under our feet with all this microbial activity um, has got to be explored. And if you want to grow gorgeous gardens, you've got to understand that that universe under your feet in the soil. And it's really not that difficult. You just have to honor it and not use uh, synthetic chemicals in the soil. And that, that's where our poultry comes in. You know, we have a conservancy of poultry at Falls Mountain Farm. We have over 500 birds, but 50 different varieties of very rare poultry. And so the last two weeks uh, since Christmas, well, since well, since um, Twelfth Night, uh, starting that Monday after, we've been digging out the barns, and it's all going in the gardens, and we do that until the end of January. And it does, um, it, it's unbelievable what it does to the soil. 
So I'm trying to get people to understand more about the soil and what's involved and that we must have living soil, not dead soil. With the, I know both of you, both of us also have a passion for cooking. And quite frankly, I always look at it like this. For too long with plants and gardening and soil practices, we were telling people that if you put this thing in a microwave, for 30 seconds, it'll be just as good as if you spent four hours making something. Sort of the, 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 the too easy philosophy. And soil is one of these subjects that literally the entire thing is rooted in. But for so long, it's just not been covered in a way that's because it wasn't considered sexy or exciting. But yeah. if, if your soil becomes as important to you, I've always shared with people that for me, the day I, I plant the plant before that, when I prepped the bed, when I did the small things, that's as exciting for me as the day the plant flowers. Because the, oh, yeah. the, yeah, the one is the result of the other. Mm-hmm. They can't be yeah. separated. And nope. the process is so important to be passionate about and have that and see it in that kind of equal view. Yeah. You know, it's so, so rewarding to show um, gardeners how you can take a small, you know, eight by eight bed, use a nominal length of some sort of lumber to do a raised bed. And, and the sort of um, bounty one can produce out of one or a series of these beds uh, is, is really remarkable. And when you really mix it up, you get the soil right, and you you get you get that microbial microbial activity going on, and then you plant with diversity and and mix it all up where it is really more of a fantastic ecology in that small little place where you're amplifying what's good for the ecology, hence the word fantastic or fantastic. Then you are really creating something that's good for the planet, and nothing's more beautiful or delicious. Let's talk about another plant you have brought up a couple of times that clearly you are passionate about. Peonies. Yeah. How do you feel about <laughs> how do you feel about peonies in the South in general? Do you feel as if do you ever have occasionally peony envy of some further northern climates where maybe the bloom is a little bit bigger? And um, peony envy, yeah. And how and how do you see them now? Do you, you know, I think so many people don't know how long lived perennial peonies are in gardens. How do you see Ito peonies or intersectional hybrid peonies in the mix and tree peonies? Give me your 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 short masterclass, PA, on peonies. Wow. Well, hold up, cowboy. You've asked a lot of questions. <laughs> Each one of them could be its own tome. But I think the the thing, first of all, peonies are absolutely luxurious. And the thing I like about them is that they're, they refuse to bloom, but only one time. And I love that. And you have to seize the season. And they don't buy into this constantly being available. And I look forward to that sweet moment in May when they're, you can cut armloads of them. And there's something really special about that in the world where you can get anything you want anytime. I'm sort of sick of all that. And so the peony is sort of the champion flower in that regard. Um, as, as they, we have 
we keep uh, at Moss Mountain 40 varieties of peonies, um, and they all came from Gilbert H. Wild and Son. I think they're the largest peony producer in America now. Uh, still, you know, just as they were doing it in 1885. And we've gotten some remarkable varieties. Now, the best for the South, people in the South, my friends in Louisiana, south of Little Rock, they struggle. And we're in zone 8A. And the cooler you go, just for those who've never grown them, further north you go, that's where your peony envy comes in because they can grow them effortlessly. And to your point, they'll live in a garden for 75 years. And the key is to plant them and leave them alone. Don't dig around them. Plant them correctly and leave them alone. The best varieties for the South are the early bloomers. And I know a lot of your listeners are know about plants. And the peonies like daffodils and tulips, et cetera, come in early, mid, and late flowering varieties. Or they're categorized that way. And so what we found is that the early blooms, um, Old Festiva Maxima from 1854, um, Sarah Bernhardt is the best known and most beloved peony of all time, um, and Carl Rosenfield. All three are very common, easy to find. Those are all early bloomers, and they do great. Um, I have found that some of the new Johnny-come-latelys in the way of Coral Charm, Hawaiian coral, coral sunset. Those early corals also will do well in the South. I did a garden 15 years ago for a wonderful person in Columbus, Georgia, Sally Foley, and she wanted peonies. And I said, well, we've got to try Old Festival Maxima. And by golly, down there in Columbus, Georgia, on the banks of the Chattahoochee, um, she had peonies, and they did beautifully. And so that's in you know, mid-South Georgia, you know, the Alabama line. Which is fantastic. Give me your take, because I'm going to give you mine, and then we're going to wrap up here. The intersectional Ito peonies, uh, hmm. more, more expensive. The thought with them originally was that the stems are a little stronger than yeah. herbaceous perennial. Yeah, but they tend to flop. The only thing I have seen with them so far seem a little slow to establish uh, and don't seem as floriferous at this point with some that have been in the ground six or seven years, PA. Same for you. What's your general observation as far as where they fit in in the, uh, the peony conversation? Well, I've been around and seen them in other gardens at, at peak time. You know, that's really on garden visits, so I don't know how they perform the day after. And we've planted some of the varieties, but I find that they, they have a certain lack of enthusiasm for getting started. And when they bloom, they, they are sunny. They're jaw-droppingly beautiful. But we don't get a return bloom, not that that's a promise. But I haven't seen... A, a growth, growth like I do with the herbaceous peonies in our Zone Eight garden, and even even at GHW Gilbert Wild and Son, um, they're not grown there, and I haven't curated any plants to be planted there. We we stick strictly with the old herbaceous varieties, um, and you know maybe that'll change. You know they're doing wonderful work with these 
with all the these different sort of hybrids and crosses and so forth, which has gone on forever. A lot of people go, oh my gosh, that's a GMO. No, it's not. <laughs> Everything's genetically modified organism, for God's sake. We cross this with that. We've been doing it since time immemorial. What I have trouble with are genetically engineered organisms. So what the plant folks are doing, they're doing, you know, they're crossing things, which is perfectly fine, and we've been doing it, as I said, a long time. And so I can't wait to see what's on the horizon. After this conversation, I've got to come out to Moss Mountain. I think that's that's what we've, de- we've decided, P. Allen. Like, that's what we're going to have to do. Yeah. We're going to have to do an in-person collaboration. And yeah. you, you and I are uh, a very similar spirit on so many of these subjects that we've covered today. I appreciate the time. And for people listening, the best absolute thing you can do for yourself that in 30 seconds or less is to go to PA's website, which I'll, of course, put the link to in the show details, and subscribe to the newsletter. Because everything that you've heard the two of us talk about today, P. Allen has a chance to expound upon. And learning about soil in January is the best time to learn about anything. Forget anything else. Start there. Manure and Other Winter Thoughts is like the greatest title of all time. So, Thank you for your time today, PA. And let's make sure everybody goes and subscribes to that newsletter. Steve, it's been a great pleasure. And I now consider you a brother of the space. Thank you. Cross ties of these old abandoned rails Wondering about the stories they could tell I think of all the weight I carry on my own And I try to empathize with all they bear There's something about the sun that brings me back to life It's just like staring in your eyes And I can't tell you what it is I'm doing here All I know is nothing's felt so right So let me stay Feeling this way Shouldn't live this
It's for you to 